Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of ND Inspo, where our mission is to connect, grow, and inspire naturopathic doctors and students from all over. My name is Dr. Kirsten DeWitt, and today I have with me Dr. Robert Kochko. Dr. Robert Kochko is a naturopathic doctor and licensed acupuncturist. He is the current president of the American Association for Naturopathic Physicians. He is the co-founder and CEO of Tribe RX, and he is a practicing doctor at InnerSource Health in Manhattan, New York. Actually, he is currently writing a book called Paint Proof. So he is such a busy guy. I am so thankful for his time today. And so today's focus involves the psychosocial implications of the current circumstances, such as social distancing, social isolation, and more importantly, what we can be doing as naturopathic doctors. So I hope that this is helpful for you and hopefully inspiring. Enjoy. I have with me Dr. Robert Kochko, and if you wouldn't mind just spending a couple of minutes kind of introducing yourself um, to our viewers. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, that's always the hardest question to answer, right? You don't want to read a bio. Um, I think I put my most recent experience after naturopathic medical school into three buckets. Um, there's the direct clinical care. So I, I see patients at InnerSource Health in Manhattan. Um, I live in Brooklyn, uh, work in Manhattan. I'm also a licensed acupuncturist. That's how I'm able to do that work. Um, and in, in a pre-licensed state like New York, we should always use pre-license. Um, the second category is advocacy work for the profession. So I'm current president of the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians and past board member of the NYANP. Um, and in New York, really focusing on, again, getting licensure and making sure that when people consider their healthcare in New York State and in other pre-licensed states, they consider naturopathic medicine as an option for them. Um, with the ANP right now, you know, we're filming this in the midst of, of coronavirus, COVID-19, COVID-19 issues. Um, we're really trying to support as many NDs as possible. We recognize fully that um, unless you guys can keep your practices open, it's gonna be really hard to have a profession at the end of this thing. So. Um, our work really started in the beginning around creating a rapid response, putting together webinars. How do you move online? How do you do telemedicine in this time frame? Um, it tra <clears throat> transitioned more to some clinical guidance, but really advocacy, trying to help NDs understand um, this call to action that we've been hearing, which is, well, here's our chance to get licensed in 50 states because we have so much value. Um, there's so much we can offer. and um, we agree and there are ways to do that and really legislation happens on a state level. So we've been working on supporting the states and supporting individual NDs. Um, and everything we've been doing from the AMP perspective is available to everyone in the naturopathic medicine community, um, member or not, because again, we need to support everyone through this. Um, our community is really larger, um, than any one association defines itself by. Um, so that's second bucket. Um, third bucket is uh, I realized really early on in practice that the way I wanted to support patients and the impact that I wanted to have, um, I always knew that I wanted sort of one-on-one -on -one patient care because that was sort of soul work is the way I described it. But um, I also wanted to make sure our medicine and our viewpoint reached as many people as possible. And it became very clear to me um, that the healthcare system was moving in a, in a very specific direction um, towards um, 
personalized medicine, precision medicine, which is all great. And it, it sort of speaks to our work as naturopathic physicians. But I also very clearly understood that in that direction, we're also um, losing the human-centered approach that we also value as MDs. Um, you know, I, I see and, and saw three years ago when I, we started our startup, TribeRx, and I very much see now that the medicine of the future is going to be, you know, you go to your doctor, you put in your symptoms into a symptom questionnaire, they have your genetic information, they have your blood work. Hopefully, if they're an ND, they have some other advanced testing and things like that. And you get the most precise, personalized treatment, but the human component of that is lost. And um, understanding the fact that when people don't feel that support, don't feel that understanding, when they feel isolated or lonely, they're much more likely to get sick. We developed a healthcare technology platform to try to reach as many uh, thousands and hopefully more people um, to give them that support, give them that understanding um, from the perspective of shared lived experience. And we're utilizing peers and technology um, to do just that, helping docs to feel um, like they can support their patients in between visits. That's really the goal, to rehumanize the healthcare experience. Um, and the other way I describe it is to take what we do in naturopathic medicine, which is very much relationship focused, right? We spend a lot of time with our patients and to um, deliver it away in a way that feels accessible to people through peers, so people who've been there before. Um, so that's Tribe Rx, that's the startup, that's the third bucket. So practice, advocacy stuff with A&P, and then healthcare technology through Tribe. That's great. I mean, it sounds like you're doing so much for our community, which is why I wanted to have you on today, just to kind of um, touch base with our fellow NDs and students, and also to discuss some of the more psychosocial aspects of what people are currently going through, what our patients are currently dealing with, um, with isolation, social distancing, how those affect um, you know, how those should be considered when we talk about obstacles to cure, right, um, with case management. And so what I would like to kind of start out with is just diving into um, what our role is as naturopathic doctors in this current circumstance that we're in, and, and what can we do to help? Sure. Wow, there's so many things we can do to help. So right now, I mean, we're you know, depending on where you're sitting and watching this, we're weeks to months into this thing. And right now the focus, the thing that's consumed um, public health is this idea that when people get into the hospital, they need to be kept alive and we need to flatten the curve to ensure that there aren't too many people showing up in the ICU and requiring things like ventilators and other supports. Um, that is a, a global, but also a national approach what we can do as NDs is expedite the flattening of that curve by practicing personalized care on the, on the front end of things, personalized prevention. Um, but what we can also do is help the people who've gone through this. A lot of people in the United States and around the world are going to be exposed to coronavirus with different uh, degrees of pathology, but we can help expedite the recovery after the process as well. Um, and so, it's about prevention, it's about um, treatment after the fact, but it's also about public health. You know, we have a unique opportunity and a unique role to play here where um, there's a lot of discourse around, well, you know, people should take vitamin C for this. And, you know, I'm seeing all over Instagram, drink lemon water, it's gonna prevent you from getting coronavirus. That's not true. But what we do know is that we have some very 
powerful tool than if we take the approach that naturopathic medicine has and, and apply it to a public health and a population health level, we have an opportunity for tremendous impact because what we're seeing is, you know, in that, um, in that immediate curve where people are showing up at the ICU, we're seeing the ones who are suffering the most are the ones who have chronic disease, right? Diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, heart disease, people who are immunocompromised, autoimmune disease, et cetera, and cancer. Um, we have a lot to say about those things, right? We have a lot to say from the perspective of lifestyle medicine to educate the public about what it takes to keep yourselves healthy, to keep yourselves from being in that sort of vulnerable state. And so my hope is um, as a society, people are gonna start asking for that more. This is hopefully, if there's any silver lining here going to awaken people to need to protect themselves so that they're able to be resilient to times of crisis. And we could talk about that from a physical perspective, and I think we're gonna talk about that from a psychosocial perspective in a bit, um, but, but naturopathic medicine has something to say across the board. I agree, and I think that you um, bring up a great point that, I mean, docere, right? A doctor as teacher, and so it's one of our, our primary principles as naturopathic doctors. And I think that it's something that we're gonna see uh, a big growth in as far as need for public health education um, and just community outreach because there are still so many underserved um, communities and I'm seeing that currently in Michigan so we've been hit pretty hard here um, and you know I think it'll be um, telling of when we get more of the demographics back but unfortunately there are still quite a few underserved populations here and it's you know, working with people on those within the chronic um, disease realm, and that's kind of where you know that's kind of our wheelhouse. And so it's it's a big gap in health education that we can really start to fill, I believe. And I think that that will become more apparent um, than ever before with this coronavirus, considering you know the core comorbidities that are kind of predisposing people um, to this and um, yeah yeah so I think that you bring up a really great point um, you know I, I mean I think it's similar to the area around Detroit I'm in New York City and what we're seeing is the outer boroughs are being impacted much more than people in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens right by Manhattan so there's a really clear socioeconomic socioeconomic impact a lot of that is probably health literacy related. A lot of that is the fact that we've known for years that zip code impacts people's likelihood of having chronic disease much more than any other indicator, right? It's access, it's um, education, um, and there's a, there's a financial component. So I really, you know, on the one hand, I hope that that doesn't prove to be true, that, that populations that are more vulnerable are going to be impacted by this more, but we're kind of seeing that it already is true. So my hope is at the very least, again, it changes the narrative that we have this is going to be a big story after the fact. Whenever we can look at this in hindsight, it's going to be a big story. From our perspective as NDs, um, you know, we, we value this idea of being holistic and, and taking, taking a comprehensive perspective. And we know that it's not just about what's happening within our bodies. It's about the environment within which we try to live our best lives. Mm -hmm. And social determinants of health are intuitive and, and inherently understood by NDs. We know that family relationships, we know that psychosocial trauma, we know about the impact of adverse childhood events. 
of course that has an impact. And of course, if you live in a, in a place that you don't have access to healthcare and preventative services, that's going to have an even more drastic impact. Um, so yeah, I, I, think, I think we have to take a real leadership role on that front as well. Yeah, and something that you've talked about in your um, talks in the past is um, peers drive behavioral change and impact compliance. And so I think that's something that, you know, it's, it's kind of an obstacle to cure right now or something, maybe not an obstacle, but something that we have to take into consideration is with this current social isolation and distancing, um, how, how are people's current environments impacting their health, um, not just by who they're surrounded by, but um, who they're not surrounded by. Um, so I think, you know, that could be something that we start to dive into now is um, uh, how, how is social isolation and social distancing, how is that affecting our patients and, um, and clients? And, and what, can we, what can we do about it? What can we do to help? Yeah, great question, thank you. So, you know, there's something really unique about this moment in that we talk from a peer perspective that there's something really valuable about shared lived experience going on a journey together. And as you said, it not only, um, if you feel supported, if you feel understood, it not only drives behavioral change, it makes it more sustainable and more feasible to make those changes that we know are helpful from a naturopathic medicine perspective, but it also is a direct determinant of disease outcomes. Outside of the behavioral change component, we know that if someone feels lonely or isolated, their risk of heart disease goes up by 25%, the risk of stroke goes up by 29%, uh, morbidity and mortality from cancer go up, Alzheimer's dementia skyrockets, suicide and suicidality go up 10 times. Um, it's as dangerous to feel, and you may have heard me say this on the last webinar, it's as dangerous to feel lonely as it is to smoke 15 cigarettes per day. It's two times more dangerous to be lonely than it is to be obese. And we know how much that contributes to health outcomes. So it's a real issue. What's unique about this moment though, is we all have this kind of um, inherent shared lived experience because we're all kind of going through this together. There's a collective trauma and there's sort of the response of the collective. And we have an opportunity to harness that, but you know, just taking the example we spoke about earlier, if people's social situations are um, different, it's not really so much a shared lived experience. Just being afraid of a virus is not the same thing if you've got a bunch of family members that you're living with and can't escape to the Hamptons for your own private house on the beach, right? Social distancing becomes much more difficult. If you live in a food desert and you don't have access to quality produce and you can't have it delivered by someone, your risks go up exponentially, right? And so um, even now, even in this moment where we can truly say we're all in this together in some sense, there's a lot to be said about shared lived experience from two perspectives. The first is um, from the perspective of environment, the environment within which we experience things, which I just mentioned. The second though, which I think is equally important is the perspective that every chronic disease that people had prior to this has not gone away and in some cases probably is getting worse, right? People aren't moving, people are not eating right, their, their, behavioral, their behavior changes, their sleep hygiene changes, whatever the impact might be. Um, those chronic diseases, we know worse than I just mentioned the idea of social isolation contributing to health outcomes. I do a lot of work with chronic pain and mental health issues 
Um, and we know that when someone is lonely and someone's isolated and their world starts to shrink, they're much less likely to recover from that condition. And so connecting them with someone else who's experiencing this, that same kind of chronic disease, chronic low back pain, depression, diabetes, whatever that might be, so that they know there's someone else out there who knows exactly what they're going through to walk the journey together, there's a lot of inherent value there. Um, and just the, the other point that I think is worth touching on is, you know, it, it's, it sounds simple enough to say it's as dangerous to be lonely as it is to smoke 15 cigarettes, but the question is why? Why is um, the impact of chronic isolation or self-perceived isolation um, worse than a lot of those other determinants? Um, well, if we take a look at our evolutionary past, um, you know, it was more dangerous when we were living in tribes of 150 people or less to be separated from the people we know are around to protect us than it was to be without food or water um, for even a short period of time. And we see that there's a genetic basis to that, but we also see the environment within which, which those genes live um, plays a really important role in, in impacting the penetrance of those genetics. Just as one example, a lot of the serotonin transporters gene, transporter genes, we know that if people have um, either the short form or the long form of the serotonin transporter, they're much more likely to have depression. But what we also know is if as, as adolescents, they get the support they need during times of crisis, it completely negates the negative impact of contributing to depression and suicide. And so we have an opportunity right now, in spite of the fact that the world is in crisis, to offer um, direct and appropriate support that's unique and specific to each individual's needs. Um, I think naturopathic medicine has a lot to say about that, right? Because we understand that the relationship we have with our patients in most cases is probably stronger than most the relationships that most patients have with their doctors and their providers. So uh, I'm encouraging all my ND friends and colleagues to, to make sure that their patients feel supported and heard and understood during this time as well. Yeah, so it sounds like you're, you're hitting on two main points there, and one is the emphasis of the relationship um, between ourselves and our patients and clients, but then also helping to create the relationships between our patients and clients amongst themselves to help have shared experiences, to have um, people to talk to, and um, uh, creating that, that peer support. Um, you know, maybe even within our own practices, if possible. Yeah, as, as much as possible. You know, what I'm finding is we also transition to telehealth, and I'm finding that, um, of course, anxiety rates are through the roof. People are feeling depressed. They're feeling afraid. Um, I'm finding that one-on-one -on -one opportunities to connect with patients and offer them a grounded understanding of what is actually happening and their likelihood of being impacted by it has been super helpful because there's just this onslaught of news and people don't really know how to make heads or tails of it. They don't know what's accurate, what isn't. Um, but also none of it is personalized to their needs, right? We're, we're hearing sort of two competing narratives. Um, one narrative is public health measures are so important and everyone needs to social distance and everyone's at risk and everyone needs to be careful. Well, frankly, those public health measures are important and the scare tactics, though I hate to admit it, are kind of necessary because otherwise people don't listen and it increases risk for those who are most vulnerable. So I understand the need to do that. But on the other hand, um, that second competing narrative is um, what does the individual need to do to protect themselves? And that's where we shine, right? That's where we personalize care. We help people 
uh, be more resilient to this, we do counseling, whatever it is that we do in our practice uh, is important on a one-on-one -on -one level. Yeah, and um, something that you have talked about in the past is redirecting our patients and clients from fear into hope. And so I'm wondering if you could take some time first just to kind of talk about the things that people are currently experiencing um, as far as mental emotionally, and then what we can do to help transition. So first, you know, help us become aware of what things to look out for with our patients, um, um, yeah. you know, maybe within that fear cycle, and then how, how can we help, trans help them transition that towards hope? Sure. Well, first, for anyone who's listening, they're like paving my road out here. So if the beeping is annoying, I just want to check in. Is it audible? <laughs> Uh, yeah, and okay. not too okay. bad. Yeah. Okay. Well, you let me know then. I can try to move to another room. So just to back up sort of 30,000 foot view, what we know from all the social science research is that when people feel and are guided by fear, it is actually a really good motivator, but it's a good motivator for them to not do things. It's a good motivator for them to contract into themselves and into their world and sort of put things on pause. And we can't afford that right now. We understand as NDs, if for months people fall off of their plan and aren't doing things to take care of themselves, that can have lasting impacts, right? That can change the trajectory of, the, of all of their health outcomes. And so I mentioned earlier the opportunity to connect with patients. We're doing town halls and like webinars and things like that in our practice um, to offer grounded education um, the way I've described it is sort of hope through understanding. If we can help our patients understand what's happening in the world, we can try to take them out of that fear component because again, fear drives inaction, hope drives action. We want people to feel activated. You're seeing a lot on social media around, well, here's a good time to pick up a new hobby and read a new book. None of that's gonna happen if people are paralyzed with fear. And the only way to bridge the gap between fear and hope is a new understanding of what's going on. Um, in terms of why that's happening, um, you know, I mentioned earlier this idea that from an evolutionary biological perspective, isolation turns on certain mechanisms in our body. Because it was more dangerous, like I said before, to be without food and water, um, whenever we were on our own, whenever we didn't feel supported, whenever we felt like we um, had to brave the dangers of the world on our own, we went into a protective mode. And that protective mode, using the language of sort of, of naturopathic physicians, is um, we turned on our sympathetic nervous system, we turned on our flight or flight, or in some cases, freeze responses. And that was appropriate for short periods of time to run away from that saber-toothed tiger or whatever we were worried about. Um, it is not appropriate in our modern world when we're constantly exposed to chronic stress. And when we are constantly exposed to chronic stress, it turns on inflammation and it turns off our immune system. It's the two things that we do not want to be doing right now. Um, the same right now is happening, even if someone isn't lonely, if someone is isolated, but they're um, in a chronic fear state. Because um, what happens when we're in a chronic fear state is our, our main job is to get away from the thing we're worried about. There's this idea of a false positive bias. Um, and the false positive bias basically says, um, I'm going to assume that the sound I'm hearing in that bush is a tiger coming at me because if it is a tiger coming at me, 
um, it would be much more dangerous to not react than to react and be wrong, right? The false positive bias is much more dangerous than a false negative bias. And so right now that tiger coming from the bush is the news cycle. It's fear around what's going to happen to family. It's, it's expectations around job loss and changes in the economy. And I think most importantly, it's the unknown and it's the uncertainty around people, what people are experiencing right now. The only way to get people outside of that cycle is to bring them into the here and now, right? And so we've got a lot of tools to do that. People love mindfulness meditation, um, different kinds of, of um, thought work, different types of body work, whatever tools you have in your toolkit, it's important for people to come um, back into the here and now. My best approach is having people come back into their bodies and sort of notice themselves. Um, and so I do biofeedback from that, from that perspective. I do hypnotherapy. Um, we can talk about those a little bit. I, I do somatic experiencing. Acupuncture, of course, is a great tool, but not right now. Um, so um, as much as possible, getting people out of that fear state into that hope state by bringing them into this moment through whatever mechanism you have that you already had in your practice. Okay, I think that's great. Yeah, because I, um, I mean, so we, we see a lot of chronic fear, which um, you talked about, but I, and just to kind of give people a little validation, I think the acute fear that we experienced, um, even I, I experienced, I don't necessarily call it fear, but that uncertainty and that doubt, just those unknowns for a few, you know, probably that good weekend, uh, we had to close down our clinic and it was just a weekend of, okay, <laughs> just kind of going inward a little bit, you know, doing what I had to do to feel safe, which was um, making sure I had cleaning, you know, cleaning supplies and things like that. And so I think it's important to, to validate our patients and peers on that response, but then help them, like you said, kind of come back into the moment and, um, and focus on what we can actually do now. Um, because yeah there like you like you've been saying there is so much that that we can do and that people can do for themselves um, to kind of work through this time um, I, I want to just pause on one thing there right there's that moment of uncertainty that you as a person dealing with this and then separately as a doctor dealing with this and wanting to be of service to your patients um, there, there's a little bit of a dichotomy there right it's it's I need to model appropriate behavior so that I don't um, show my patients, you know, that fear is the way to, to address this most effectively. But then there's also the fact that you're a person who's doing their best and trying to deal with this um, and, you know, going out and getting hand sanitizer or whatever it is. Um, I think beyond that acute stage, like you said, um, we, have, we have a unique opportunity to help ourselves by helping others. You know, we talk about what actually helps us address this feeling of uncertainty this feeling of loneliness and isolation that you know impacts us just like it impacts our patients. It, it seems like in the research, probably the most direct way to do that is by being of service. So if we um, really ground ourselves and, and, and harness our knowledge and our education about how the body heals itself, and we have a unique voice in naturopathic medicine, we can talk more about that, but um, if we do that effectively, um, and we help others and we get this feedback at the end of a visit that, hey, wow, 
you know, I feel better. I, I did a, a, a hypnotherapy over Zoom yesterday and the person messaged me yesterday and they said, I haven't felt this good in three weeks. Well, wow, that was actually healing for me to, to, to see that I was of service there, right? And so um, I think there's a lot to be said about um, in, a, in a healthy and sustainable way getting lost in our work right now. Um, because if we um, allow us to get into the flow state of, of helping others, we're directly helping ourselves. And, and from a pure perspective, that proves to be true across the board. People with um, substance use disorder, or severe mental health, when they serve as peers to help others on their journey, not only do they help those other people, but they help themselves much more. Um, and so, so here's our opportunity selfishly to say in helping others, we're especially helping ourselves. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, and something that, so uh, last week, Dr. Liu had talked about compassion practice. And so I help a, uh, I help run a group with doing the NADA protocol at an addiction rehab facility, which is still going on. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm running it as safely as I can under the circumstances. Um, but we, we incorporated compassion practice into our last session. And so it's, it's a way for them to um, help themselves. So compassion towards themselves, but then also compassion towards the rest of the world that's currently um, going through this. And so I think it gives a little bit of empowerment to them and to ourselves to feel that we are doing something, um, even if it's as simple as compassion, you know, showing compassion, um, feeling compassion and giving compassion. Um, yeah, totally. so there's, yeah, there's so many tools that we can start utilizing for ourselves, like you said, and for our patients. Um, Let's see, um, what, what are other things that you think are important for naturopathic doctors to kind of be aware of, to consider, to know? So we can answer that from lots of perspectives. I think one of the biggest fears, we did a, um, an A&P webinar yesterday and at the very end, really good turnout. It was about the stimulus package. Everyone wants to understand how to, how to help their business navigate, but at the end we did a poll and the thing that people are still looking for, for guidance on more than anything else is how do you transition to having a successful business right now? Um, and from that perspective, I think messaging to our patients is super important. I'm not sure even in our practice, we fully figured out how to do that, but um, reminding people that, that you know, their health goals have not changed through all this. There was, we were, you know, there was a, a lot of, of suffering in the world before all this started, like I said before. So messaging to our patients that um, not only can we help them, but we have a unique approach to this because we address chronic disease very effectively and that now is the time to feel empowered to help ourselves. You know, there's a lot of really interesting research around the role of, of levels of self-directedness. So the feeling like you can actually help yourself in contributing to helping people feel better. So educating our patients on the fact that um, they can't just put a break on, on everything else they've been doing. They have to eat well. They have to have a regular routine. They have to move their bodies. They have to have, you know, uh, a stress and a stress relieving and a joy based practice. They have to practice compassion or gratitude or loving kindness, whatever it is. All those things are a way to at the same time, help our patients, but also help our businesses by reminding them that, you know what, you have to 
schedule those telehealth visits, it's essential. Um, and so that's something that we're just working on in our practice and how to do that most effectively. Um, because like I said a couple of times, as MDs, we have a real voice here on the prevention side of things. Yes, we understand that we can help people be more resilient to viruses generally, and, and we can help people's immune systems be more active. Um, even if that's just getting them to cut out sugar, right? That there's no debate there that that will actually help. But we have, you know, it's not just telling people and putting out some kind of social media post around it. It's actually teaching people how to do that in a in a sustainable way. Um, whether it's that or um, helping people to understand that they can start protecting themselves now, so that when they, if they, and when they inevitably get the virus, they're more able to work through it. Um, all those things. Um, I truly don't believe that there's a, a profession out there that can be of more service than the naturopathic medicine profession. I agree. I think we're, we play a, a huge role in that. And so um, I guess what I've been, I keep saying, you know, what can we do to help? But it's really, it's really just amplifying what we've already been doing, you know, and just making it more known and more accessible um, than it already is. Um, and, yeah, just helping to get the word out there. Um, did you want to talk at all about the safety aspect? Yeah, so, you know, we, we can look at populations that have been exposed to either personal psycho-emotional traumas or collective traumas. Like if you look at um, people's response to um, past epidemics like the Spanish flu and things like that and sort of who came out of it successfully and who didn't. Um, and there are certain preconditions of trauma. I really like uh, Bessel van der Kolk's work. He wrote the, the Body Keeps the Score and he talks about how there's a, there's a bodily response and that we need to honor that and, and listen to that bodily response. Um, and he lays out um, certain sort of preconditions for trauma that I think are very much in line with this idea of safety. So signaling to our physical bodies that are beneath conscious control, um, the fact that we're safe in spite of everything else that's going on, right? It's not just telling ourselves we're safe. It, it's actually feeling into our bodies and listening to our bodies and, and um, understanding that safety from a visceral perspective. Um, the preconditions for trauma are, um, as he lays out, this isn't my work, lack of predictability, immobility, which we're all experiencing right now, feeling stuck at home and not being able to activate and, and serve in whatever way we're used to and not having our purpose. Loss of connection, we talked about the role of social isolation. Um, this idea of needing to numb ourselves to protect ourselves, that's a precondition of, of any kind of trauma, and it could be from a collective perspective here. Um, a loss of a sense of time and sequence, which is happening here, right? I'm counseling all my patients on the need to have a steady routine, go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time, have things that they can look forward to in their schedule, you know, Zoom chats or FaceTime chats or whatever um, feels most appropriate. Um, a loss of a sense of purpose. So a lot of people right now are um, losing their jobs. They're either unemployed or underemployed. There's a lot of that uncertainty. And with that uncertainty comes a loss of purpose. And then the last precondition of trauma that he talks about um, is a need for safety, is a need to feel like um, there isn't a threat of harm because, and this is now my sort of addition to this narrative, is once there's a, a um, 
an expectation of harm. Our body's primary and, and, and sole purpose is to protect ourselves, right? As complex adaptive systems, we want to do the best we can in spite of whatever stressors are coming in into us. And so if we don't feel safe, that's a stress to our nervous system. It's a stress to our hormonal systems. Um, and the thing that we need to do is activate ourselves to help ourselves. And so there are certain parts of the brain, which I'm particularly interested around, again, chronic pain and mental health, like the anterior cingulate cortex, like the anterior insula, like the prefrontal cortex. There are parts of our brain that when we don't feel safe, when we feel like there's a, uh, an opportunity for harm, are activated. And those parts of the brain from, again, this perspective of social distancing are activated in similar ways by social pain and physical pain. So if you go to a party and this has actually been studied, there's sort of exclusionary um, types of research and you go to a party and someone's mean to you or everyone's excluding you, it, it quite literally turns on the same reading regions as if they were punching you in the shoulder the whole time. And our patients are experiencing these things. The anterior cingulate cortex, just to break those down very briefly, um, that's the part of our brain that really, um, beyond physical discomfort, where is it, what does it feel like, um, deals with our, our suffering around that and our need to do something about that. That's the part of the brain that's really deeply connected to the amygdala, to the hippocampus, figuring out sort of the memory of, of prior suffering. The insula is almost like our internal thermostat. It, its job is to assess for damage in our bodies and to assess whether we're whole or not, right? Safety is a lot about being whole and being um, sort of living our full purpose there. The prefrontal cortex that I mentioned is really very much involved in the meaning of all of this, right? Well, what does this mean for my life in the future? What does this mean for my relationships? Is my family going to be okay? All those things activate the prefrontal cortex, again, in a very real way, turn on a lot of those disease-related mechanisms. Um, and so if we can help our patients understand that they probably are safe once they've taken those public health measures to heart, um, there's a lot to be said about tuning out the alarm mechanism that goes in with a lot of those brain regions that then doesn't put us into that fight or flight or freeze response and puts us more into the type of parasympathetic response that we need to make those behavioral changes, digest our food, sleep well, have um, grounded relationships, right? All those things that we hope for our patients. So there's, there's nothing like um, feeling safe as a precondition, just to bring that all full, full circle, as a precondition to coming out of this in a way that's um, as unscathed as possible, I think. Yes, I think it's, it's very important to just kind of be aware of those mechanisms. Something that, um, so I, I got off of social media uh, about a year or more ago now. And one of the reasons was because of the research that they were finding with the prefrontal cortex and how, um, you know, it's really kind of shrinking those inhibitory pathways. So constantly scrolling and just being stimulated, um, it, it kind of lowers our ability to, to think before we respond and react. It kind of heightens those, those alarm um, responses and reactions um, from, what, from what my understanding is. And um, so I think that's something that we should also maybe educate on with our patients is our, our ways that we can help 
to en enhance those inhibitory pathways so that we can re respond rather than react. Um, are feeling either triggered or alarmed or afraid um, so that we can take that moment between uh, between the reaction um, and the, the trigger um, and take a breath and you know actually uh, be able to have a little bit of control over that come back into this moment you know it, the, that idea around social media changing how we engage with the world um, it's, it's always been a concern, but I think it's, it's just going to be highlighted now. You know, that sort of ability to, to delay gratification is gone. We need constant, frequent dopamine hits. And this isn't, you know, a new idea, but um, the, the companies, the technology companies that are producing this understand how to, how to make these products addictive, right? They, they turn on these, these dopamine mechanisms frequently. And, and just as you were talking, I just, since we're talking about the role of social distancing in the community and all that kind of stuff, um, there's some really interesting, but also concerning research right now that um, there's almost like a vicious cycle here because when people feel lonely, um, they're much more likely to get that, that same dopamine hit from objects than from people. Mm. Positive object, so whatever's positive for them, ice cream, um, turns on that dopamine response more effectively than even someone sitting there and eating ice cream, seeing a person enjoying it, um, doesn't have that same effect. And um, we, we develop a little bit of a bias when we feel lonely or feel isolated where um, we stop seeing other people's positive affect as effectively. We don't get that reward response. We don't get that dopamine response um, from seeing a smiling face like we would if we felt supported as a precondition. Um, those two things together, super concerning to me right now, given that everyone has as this baseline, this need um, to, or this um, social distancing call to action. So. Yeah, so I think um, just educating and gentle reminders to our patients and our peers of, I think you've mentioned this before, quality versus quantity. So um, the quality of the interactions that we have rather than, you know, simply scrolling through Instagram or Facebook to kind of look for that connection, um, hopping on a Zoom call or doing whatever you can to have a, a more quality connection, um, I think is, is kind of important to remember. Yeah, you don't need 5,000 Facebook friends. You need, you know, one or two or three people that you feel you can reach out to and, and truly um, sort of the, like the linear dose response, two or three people that you can feel you can be yourself with, which is really an important component here, um, is all you need. Now, it's not lost on me that a lot of people don't feel like they have that these days. And so um, cultivating relationships with that goal in mind is, is super important. Um, it becomes especially difficult when we're not seeing each other in person to continue to maintain those relationships. So I think that's one of the takeaways here is that um, people need to work overtime. We're not used to needing to do this. You know, I have a list of people that I know I need to keep checking in on and, and, and hopefully they're checking in on me um, because um, not only are they important to me, but it's, um, it's really hard without a list. Like it's, it's hard not to get lost in everything else that's going on. So I just make sure to check in. I'm like, Oh, I haven't, you know, called this friend in a while. So I'm trying to do that. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a good a good method <laughs> for our list people, people that love the lists. Um, and then lastly, just to kind of wrap things up, um, what keeps you inspired by by our medicine, by naturopathic medicine, and what keeps you hopeful for the future and for the future of healthcare? Yeah, hopeful for the future of healthcare. I think as a species, we're super resilient. And, you know, this too shall pass. We're going to be very different after all this, I, I think. My hope is that um, we're going to be kinder to each other and we're going to understand all these things. That, the role of social isolation, unfortunately, I've been trying to scream from the rooftops for like three and a half years at this point. Um, we started our company TribeRx three years ago. Um, so this isn't a new thing, but my hope is that um, people's understanding of its importance changes. And again, that'll be some kind of a silver lining. As far as what keeps me inspired, honestly, it's conversations like this. It's the reason I go to our A&P's DC Fly because I always leave that weekend inspired about our medicine. Um, it's the reason I go to the A&P conference, but also other conferences um, in our profession and in allied professions because there's nothing like seeing other people living their purpose around this medicine to inspire me to live mine. And so frequent touch points, um, I think I think is super important. That's great. And I think, um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this is because there are so many different ways to apply naturopathic medicine. And it's always great to hear different stories of how people are utilizing it and putting it into play. Um, so thank you so much for all that you do for our community and all that you continue to do. Um, I am thankful for you and for all of your work with A&P and DC Fly. Um, and thank you for joining me today. I and, hope and, and I, I hope so too. And, 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 you know, the same back to you. Thank you for doing this. I think right now, especially our community needs as much inspiration as they can get. And I think this is a great series you're putting on. It's, uh, I'm, I'm expecting it'll be helpful for a lot of people. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye.